Our Old Testament reading is from the book of Zephaniah, chapter 3, verses 14 to 20. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away our enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival, so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together. For I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. The word of the Lord. Today's psalm is Psalm 100. We will read responsively by whole verse. Oh, be joyful in the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness and come before his presence with a song. Be assured that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Oh, go your way into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and speak good of his name. For the Lord is gracious, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endures from generation to generation. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Our New Testament reading today is from Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, and sisters, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The gospel lesson this morning is from Matthew chapter 1, chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. Will you please stand for the reading of the gospel? 
This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice! And be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in this way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness ever be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but instead on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In this same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please be seated. We are privileged today to be joined by Dr. Reverend, the Reverend Dr. Aubrey Spears, who is the senior pastor and church planter of Church of the Incarnation in Harrisonburg. Uh, Aubrey planted that church 11 years ago, 12 years ago, uh, and it has been the anchor church for all the other churches in our area. Uh, Church of the Lamb in Kieselton and um, Church of the Holy Cross in Crozet, Cush Anglican Church also in Harrisonburg, and then us. Um, And so Aubrey is also the dean of our deanery which is the the smaller geographic region of our diocese. We're really privileged to have him come and open God's word to us today. Aubrey. Well, good morning. It's very good to see you. The Hogans. Wow. So good to see you guys. Um, I bring you greetings from the Church of the Incarnation in Harrisonburg. We pray for you guys um, a lot. Uh, every Sunday, our church prays for one of the churches um, in our deanery, and that means you guys come up about once a month, and I pray for you guys every week, and we care very much about you, and you're often in not only our hearts and our thoughts, but in our conversations, and um, you might not know our people and they might not know you individually, but they know lots about you. And um, I'm so glad to get to be here. I haven't been here in a long time. Uh, back in 2020, there was a pandemic. Were you there? And I don't know if you know, but I got sick. And I ended up in the hospital, and I almost died. Um, they told my wife to get our affairs in order. And um, 
it was, I got out of the hospital right about now, 2,000 years ago, two, two years ago. And um, I had a very hard time. I still have uh, symptoms from COVID. Yesterday, I was telling Janelle on the drive down, yesterday I could not remember our address. And this is a thing that used to not be the case. Um, and Janelle was telling me, well, you know, it's funny you mention it. I notice also that um, I think you're slipping <laughs> again. And so uh, I've had this rough couple of years. Um, it wasn't just COVID. I had a whole other set of things that if they had happened, it would have been the worst year of my life. And a thing that God has been teaching me lately is that in times of suffering, it is really important that we learn to give voice to our grief and voice to our sorrow, and we don't hide from it. But another thing that God has been teaching me lately is our New Testament passage, Philippians chapter 4. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn there. Philippians chapter 4. And notice this thing that Paul says. Rejoice in the Lord always. And just in case you don't believe me, again, I say rejoice. Now, sometimes when I've read that, I've been like, yippee-ki-yay, sounds good, let's do that. But there have been years in my life where I read that and I'm like, you got to be joking me. If he had not said always, I would have been much easier with it. So when I read Paul saying rejoice always, I want to say, for real, Paul, like, is that just preacher talk? Are you just using words? Are you just saying stuff? Or did you really mean this? I mean, didn't Paul pay attention to the Psalms that he had memorized growing up in synagogue? Psalms like Psalm 102, where David cries out, do not hide your face from me, Lord, in my distress. And he goes on to say, my days pass away like smoke and my bones burn like a furnace. I forget to eat. My bones cling to my flesh. My enemies taunt me. I mingle my tears with my drink. Really, Paul, always, even in that kind of moment? Or what about Psalm 88 when Haman the Ezrahite cries out for help day by day asking God, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? And then he points out to God, your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults are destroying me. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun. In this moment, God is his enemy. And he ends this psalm with one of the most haunting lines in all of Scripture, Darkness has become my only companion. Now, not everybody in this room, I'm sure, has experienced that. But I am sure there are many people in this room who have. Who have been to places in life where the only place where you feel like you have anything in common with anything is in the darkness. 
And what about Jesus? Would Paul have said these words to Jesus? What about Jesus? Would he have said to him, rejoice always? Would he have said that to Jesus when he's weeping at the grave of Lazarus? Would he have said that to Jesus when he was overcome with disappointment at the foot of the Mount of Transfiguration when his disciples couldn't cast out the demons? Or what about Jesus in his burst of anger in the temple? Or in the Garden of Gethsemane, did Jesus rejoice when the disciples forsook him and Peter denied him? Did Jesus rejoice when he was on trial and people were lying about him? Did he rejoice when the soldiers were mocking him and beating him and spitting on him? I don't remember Jesus rejoicing on the cross. So is Paul asking us to do better than Jesus? What does he mean when he says rejoice always? The, the question is, can he really mean what he says here? Or, there's some options. He's naive to pain. He's just one of these Pollyanna kind of guys that has had a Pollyanna life that shows up at your graveside saying, hey, it's going to be okay. Or is he exaggerating for effect? Like just using like rhetorical speech here. I, I think the answer is no. No to both of those. I think he, one, means what he says. I think that Paul is not naive and that he is not exaggerating for effect. Consider this. Philippians is a letter that Paul is writing while he is in Ephesus somewhere around the year 55 AD. Now, the reason that's important is because we can put some chronology together based on the letters of the New Testament. We, can, we know, for example, that five or six years before he wrote this letter, he started this church. Five or six years before this, he started the church in Philippi. We don't know how long he was in Philippi when he was teaching people the gospel and starting the church. What we do know is why he left Philippi and he's not there anymore. We know that when Paul was in Philippi, he and his companion Silas were attacked by a mob. And then when the soldiers came up, they arrested Paul and Silas for instigating the mob and disturbing the peace. And then the soldiers beat Paul and Silas, threw them in jail, and finally released them and ran them out of town. Now, we don't know how long they were there, but we know that's what led them to leave. So that was how the church in Philippi got started. The church was birthed in the context of hostility and conflict and the suffering of police brutality, mob assault, and a corrupt justice system. That's how that church got started. In fact, if you have your Bible, go back to chapter 1. Notice what Paul says to them in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit and with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. They're still going through it. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that's from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So think about that's who he's writing to that group of people who are still suffering, 
who knows that he knows what suffering is. And that's the group he's saying rejoice always to. So you can't wipe this away as a naive kind of Pollyanna statement. And you also can't wipe it away as um, him just using rhetorical effect. He would have known the impact of that phrase to those people. If you walk up to somebody at a graveside and you say to them, rejoice always, you know what you're saying and you know where you're saying it. The Christians in Philippi are suffering. They're suffering because they have enemies and enemies are harming them. And we also know that's not the only reason that they are suffering. Because in, first, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we're told that they are living in a state of extreme poverty. So Paul is in Ephesus writing this letter. And here's one other thing. Paul not only knows that they are suffering when he tells them to rejoice. He not only knows that they're suffering from opponents and from extreme poverty. Get this. Paul is writing from Ephesus. And in Ephesus, he's not hanging out at a friend's house. He's in jail. Paul is writing this from a place of current suffering. He's been arrested again because of his faith. He's sitting in jail. And, and if you know anything about Paul's life, that's just the tip of the iceberg. This guy who says rejoice always, we know that he endured far more hardships in his life than many of us would experience in 10 lifetimes. We know that he was in prison often, beatings beyond counting, whipped by the Jews five times, beaten three times, stoned which is a way of trying to kill somebody, not give them a good trip for the weekend, stoned three times, shipwrecked, threatened by the sea, by highway robbers, by hypocritical Christians, and always living in a state of heightened anxiety for his churches. Just a few sentences past the passage for this morning, he lays out some of the circumstances in which he rejoices. He knows what it means to get by, he says, on nothing. He knows what it means to be without basic necessities. He knows what it means to be in want, to be without. And this is the Paul who experiences sufferings, who experiences hunger. This is the Paul who says rejoice always. He means it. He's not exaggerating for effect. And, he, and, and, he, and when we see that, when we stop reading this so fast because we're so used to it, and we stop for just a minute and we say, really? Really always? And the moment we stop there and we remember who's writing the letter and who he's writing it to, suddenly its deep meanings can open up. You see, we need to shift our question from questioning Paul's sincerity. We need to shift it from saying, does he know what he's talking about? Does he really mean it? Instead, we need to ask, holy cow, how do I do that? How does a guy in prison do that? How do a group of people who are starving do that? How are we supposed to rejoice 
when life is beating us down, when our addictions are winning, when we've begged God to let us have a different orientation and He doesn't change our orientation, how, how do we rejoice when it suddenly feels that the journey we're on just keeps going farther down? How are we supposed to rejoice when all the things that are happening in our life and in this world just keep swelling up to ever bigger, horrible dimensions? Paul tells us in verse 5. He tells us how to do this. He says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. That's how. That's how. Throughout Scripture, the presence of God produces joy. Think about this. In Psalm 1611, it says, In your presence is fullness of joy. See, when Paul says the Lord is at hand, he says the way to rejoice, you can rejoice in all circumstances because of this. The Lord is near. And when the Lord is near, joy is available. Psalm 21, verse 6, You make the king glad with joy in your presence. It's the presence of God that produces the effect of joy. Psalm 95, verse 2, let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. And of course, our psalm this morning, Psalm 100, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. And jumping to that tiny little book in the New Testament, Jude Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, he ends his epistle praising Jesus Christ, who is, this is what he says, able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Over and over when you read in the Bible and it talks about God's presence, right next to that is joy. Joy is an effect of being before the face of God. Now, this is a trick because all of us know people that when we're before their face, joy is not the effect. All of you can think of somebody, when they turn their attention to you, it is not joy that is produced in your heart. But God is not like that. When God turns His face, there is joy because the Lord Himself is the fullness of joy. This is what we heard in our Old Testament passage in Zephaniah. Listen to it again. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout for joy, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why? The Lord has taken away your judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. Yahweh chases away the enemies of Jerusalem. He rescues the lame and the outcasts. All the evils that Judah had suffered are going to be reversed. There will be a new creation as Yahweh gathers His people to Him. Israel's day of gloom that was so graphically described in the first chapters of Zephaniah. Israel's gloom turns to a day of light at the end of Zephaniah, a day of joy. Why? Because Yahweh himself comes into the midst of his people. 
The difference between the gloom at the beginning of Zephaniah and the joy at the end is Yahweh in the midst of his people. Listen again to Zephaniah 3.17. I think the most beautiful line of Scripture in all the Bible. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. When you look in his face, the effect is joy. Here is Yahweh in the midst of his people. He's a victorious warrior shouting and rejoicing over his bride. And Israel is caught up into his exaltation. Daughter Zion is supposed to shout for joy. Why? Because Yahweh is in her midst, rejoicing with shouts of joy. Think about this. It's not just, hey, rejoice because God is here. It's Israel getting drawn up into the joy of God himself. This prophecy in Zephaniah is surely fulfilled in Jesus. Luke's gospel is especially keen on this. Just imagine Jesus as he walks through the towns of Galilee and he's announcing in them the arrival of the kingdom. If you read through the lectionary for your daily devotions, this morning our reading was the wedding at Cana. John, who wrote two books, right? Um, His gospel, um, and, and, and he continues it in Revelation. His gospel starts with a wedding and Revelation ends with a wedding. This is how John sees God as the Lord of the feast. He sees Jesus this way. Think about in Luke's gospel, when the announcement is made about the birth of Jesus, song breaks out everywhere. Mary sings when she goes to visit Elizabeth. Zechariah sings when John is named. Angels sing when the shepherds learn the news. Simeon sings when he sees the infant Jesus. Everywhere those birth narratives go, people break out into song and dance. Why? Because the Lord is in their midst. Because the effect of the Lord in their midst is joy. And then when Jesus grows into a man, his miracles and his ministry, they're evidence that the Lord is in the midst of his people. The day of light and joy that Zephaniah spoke about is finally here. Jesus and his deeds and his miracles and his teachings, he's showing that the Lord is in the midst of Israel, exulting and rejoicing and singing like a a groom over his bride. Remember the prophecy from Zephaniah, chapter 3, verse 19. I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will change their shame into praise. Isn't that a great description of the Jesus we read about in the Gospels? Healing the lame, gathering the outcasts, changing the woman's shame who's been bleeding for 12 years into praise? Isn't that what happens when Jesus shows up into towns? The lame are healed, the outcasts are given new life. Think of all those whom Jesus delivered from sickness and shame and guilt. You see, Jesus fulfilled Zephaniah's prophecy. He's the king. He's Yahweh himself. He's coming to the midst of his people, and the joy fills the air. Not only when the angels sing at his birth, it overflows into the life and ministry of Jesus. Now, we're ready to go back to Philippians. When Paul says rejoice always, his reason is the Lord is at hand. 
because of the Lord's arrival and presence, we can rejoice in every circumstance. King Jesus is at hand. And when he ascended into heaven, he poured out his spirit to fill us with his presence. And so we can rejoice in every circumstance because God is never distant. When you pray the Our Father, Our Father who is in heaven, it does not mean my Father who is way out there somewhere past Pluto. What it means to a Jew in heaven is my Father who is near to me. Heaven is overlapping and interlocking with earth. Our Father in heaven speaks to the nearness of God, not the distance of God. The reason we can rejoice in all circumstances is because God is never distance. He is nearer to us than anyone else, even nearer to us than we are to ourselves. When we suffer hardships and needs, we can remind ourselves God is here. Whether I feel it or not, whether I see it or not, God is here. This is Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day for darkness is as light with you. King Jesus is at hand. The Lord is in our midst. He's poured out His Spirit upon us. He's filled us with His Spirit. But we don't always know that. We don't always feel that. We don't always know that the Lord is near. But He is always near. Sometimes we cry out and He doesn't seem to hear us. Sometimes we're on the cross and our cry is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How can we rejoice in these moments when we're crying and he doesn't seem to be listening? What happens when we desperately need him to, clo to close the mouth of the lions and he doesn't? When my mother dies, when my spouse betrays me, when I don't know where the next paycheck is coming from, when work expects more from me than any one person could possibly do, when I wake up in the middle of the night covered in sweat as waves of stress overcome me, what is happening when I fail a test, when I've lost the love of my life, when I want a love of my life and I never can get one, when my child dies and my body is racked in pain, when broken and rotting relationships litter the ground of my life when my parents again and again don the well-worn garment of disappointment in me how can i rejoice in these kind of what is going on when there is no sign of rescue well paul has something more dramatic in mind and more dynamic in mind we rejoice not only because the lord is physically near to us by the gift of his spirit when he says the Lord is near, it's a double entendre. It's not only that he's close to me physically, it's that his return is near. The Lord is at hand also speaks to the return of Christ. It's the return of Christ that I can find a source of joy in. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say the Lord is at hand. He's coming. His nearness is not only in terms of space, it's in terms of time. We are preparing, we are waiting, we are longing and expecting Christ to return. To put evil and death to death. To remove forever 
the darkness that enslaves and imprisons us to end corruption and destruction. There is coming a day when I will not struggle with sin anymore. There is coming a day when He will wipe every tear from my eye. And because of that, I can rejoice. This is why we can rejoice in our suffering. We rejoice in the presence of the Lord, sharing in His joy, and in those moments when His presence and His joy is more hoped for than felt, we can have joy and hope. In his letter to the Romans at one point, when he's talking about joy, even in times of suffering, he says we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Our rejoicing is not an act of ignoring pain or because the pain isn't real or isn't serious. We rejoice in tribulations because we know that the darkness of this moment is not the end of the story. It is not final. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, not because that joy is fully realized here and now, but because it will be fully realized. And in doing this, we're following Jesus, who, like the writer of the Hebrews said, for, jo- for the joy that was set before him, he went to the cross, despising its shame. So even now, when so much stands against us, when the Lord has hidden his face, and doesn't appear to have any intention of showing it again. Even in the midst of searing loneliness and grief and tragedy, we can rejoice in the hope of glory. We can despise what's happening, and we can rejoice, like it says in Revelation, He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. So in Philippians, here is Paul suffering in jail, injustice, corruption, hunger, writing to a group of people that he knows full well are right in the teeth of it. And he chooses to end his letter in this place, like Paul, like the Philippians, you too can rejoice always. You can rejoice always because the Lord is at hand. The Lord loves you so much. It is just love to the core of his being. God loves you so much that He sent His own Son to die for you. He became flesh. He suffered all the limits and frustrations of life for you. He was hated and oppressed out of His love for you. He was arrested and tried for you. He was mocked and scourged and spat upon for you. He went to the cross for you. When Paul is writing in Galatians one of his most confusing books and he's going on and on about this high theology, suddenly right in the middle of it he stops and says, the Lord loves me and he gave his son for me. 
This is the core of it. He's come for you, and He won't leave you, and He will return for you. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice because He's coming for you. The Lord is at hand, even in the midst of inexplainable horror, He's at hand. In a world of of hurricanes and tornadoes and car wrecks and illness and suffering, the Lord is near. One last thing. Just notice one last thing about this phrase. He tells them to rejoice. And rejoicing is an activity, not an attitude. It's not an emotion. It's not a mood. It's an action. Rejoicing is something you do with lips and tongue and vocal cords. It is a thing you do. It's an activity. It's, it's something you do when you wake up in the morning, whether you feel like it or not. You reach and scratch and claw and find one thing that you can rejoice in Christ for. And you do it throughout your day. You set a watch. You, he says rejoice always. Put it into practice. Put it in your diary. It's not about get in a mood of happiness. Do this before you go to sleep. This is something you do. You rejoice not in your mind. You rejoice in your body with songs and words and prayers. Some days we sing with tears streaming down our faces, but we sing because we're sure of our hope. Christ is coming. He will repair everything. He will make all things that are sad come untrue. And when this grips our heart and our imagination, rejoicing comes out because we trust God to take care of our enemies. And we trust God to bring justice. We trust God to make all things new. And we rejoice. And when a group like this, when a church, when it becomes a habit of a church, when rejoicing becomes a skill that a church learns to do, over and over, in good times and bad times, even in the direst circumstances, when rejoicing becomes a matter-of-fact practice in your life, in your household's life, in your friend's life, in the family of the church's life, when we learn the skill of rejoicing in the hope of glory, we will be remade slowly but surely into the image of Christ. What I'm saying is that rejoicing is a moral choice. It's a moral choice. It's a choice we make. It's a habit we learn over time. And when we do, it cultivates our soul. And as you and I learn to do this in tiny, everyday ways, we will be equipped to do it in the darkness. When we're overwhelmed by profound evil, We have to practice daily rejoicing. And when we do, it will swell up into something astonishing, something that can teach our children the hope of the resurrection and give us all a taste of the kingdom. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, I confess to you that I, um, I forget this. And some days I wake up and I practice other things than rejoice. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. 
And thank you for this church and for my church in Harrisonburg that every Sunday our musicians make me do it. They make me rejoice in you. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of your spirit and your presence and for the hope of glory. In Christ's name, amen.